With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. There was a time when the idea of art was you did something and you hoped people would interpret it in interesting ways. Now I think artists want people to understand what they did. It underlines that criticism and interpretation has now become part of the art, an extension of the art. Oh, sure. If you're able to appreciate the lyrics of a song the first time you hear them, it usually means the lyrics are kind of shallow. <laughs> but the best songs you got to listen to for a while and you realize, well, they might actually mean the opposite of what they say. The things that are great take a while to get. That's an interesting point because when somebody performs something, they want to be liked and understood right away. So I've got, once again, Chuck Klosterman, one of my favorite creatives. I don't even call you just a writer. I call you a creative. You're like one of the most creative people I know, and which is interesting because you're a cultural critic. People don't usually call critics creatives. There's like the artists and then the critics, and they're like a separate universe. But yeah, you, well, I you think— well, you know, I really view criticism as sort of just intellectual entertainment. I do think it is creative, to be I, honest. I, I think it totally is, and I think you are an, a, a true artist of the craft. You're like the, the, the top 1% of pop culture analysts, writers out there. Well, that's nice of you to say. So, so I want to just quickly—we're uh, going to talk about your book, Chuck Klosterman X— Amazing cover, by the way. I showed this cover to a friend of mine who's written um, several novels, and she said, oh, my God, what a cover. I've been begging my publisher to give me a black cover for years, and they never do. Yeah, How they, did- no, they, they did a nice job on that. i got to mention one thing about the title, though. The title, and this is my own fault, is actually Chuck Klosterman 10. It's my 10th book, but I really overlooked the popularity of Roman numerals in America. I don't know what I thought I was doing. Well, because Chuck Klosterman four was an IV. I know, but, but nobody but, would say, "Oh, this is the IV well, of Chuck Klosterman." No, here's what's crazy. Many people did call it Chuck Klosterman IV, like it was a medical textbook. But that was enough years ago. I guess I forgot that had happened. Literally, everyone who sees this book for totally justifiable reasons, calls it Chuck Klosterman X, which isn't so terrible. Because, no. I mean, like, X can mean lots of things. It can mean, like, the unknown. It has a mathematical element. You know, it could be, like, how, you sign, how you sign your name if you're illiterate. Um, so there's lots of things it could mean. But what I should have done, I don't know why I didn't think of this, is they on the spine we should have spelled out the word 10. Then no, everybody would know. I don't think so. I think, actually, I, I get it. You had an idea. 10, it's your 10th book, but no one gives a but, shit that it's your 10th you book. But you actually didn't get Well, that was the other thing. It's kind of arrogant of me to assume that people are keeping track of how many books I've written. But, like, but, you know, like, yeah. but, but the X has, as you just reeled off four pretty deep meanings, the yeah. X actually has meaning. Yeah, it's true. Because, you know, you know was, maybe, you know, sometimes you make a mistake and it's better than the intention. Because pop culture... 
there is a hidden variable that X, that mysterious, you know, solve for X. What is the linkage between pop culture and how we as a society respond to it? What is that mysterious, you know, connection that we have with some things and not well, others? And I that's what, and you are, you are, you are traversing that valley. That's, mm. that's what you do. And, and, and I just want to reel off some of the other titles I explained to you earlier. Once I turn 45, even though I've read all these books before our earlier podcast, once I turned 45, my, my memory started to go. So I'm just going to read these off of a list. Your first one was Fargo City. No, Fargo Rock City. Fargo Rock City. Yeah. Killing Yourself to Live, you know, 85% of a True Story. I love that title. I Wear the Black Hat, Grappling with Villains, Real and Imagined. But What If We're Wrong, which was the topic of our last podcast. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, and then Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, which was the first book I had read from you a while ago. That was, I feel like that was like, Maybe I'm wrong, but that was like your original breakout essay hit. Yeah, oh, definitely. That was the second book, and I would another say— Another great title and another great cover. Maybe as popular as all the other books combined, actually. I bet if we actually counted up the sales, I've probably sold as many copies of that book as the other nine. <laughs> Do you think just the title, having sex in the title and drugs and Cocoa Puffs no, is an you interesting know. triple? You know, I, 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 the thing is, it's like— this isn't something that we've never talked about. Like me and my publisher and my agent was like, why is that book so popular? Is it the title? Is it the design? Was it the timing? Was it the fact that there really hadn't been a book about popular culture sort of written in this way that was so focused on consumer culture but kind of written in the way I wrote it? I, I don't know. I don't know why that happened. But, you know, I, I think that the honest answer probably is that there's nothing that perpetuates success like pre-existing success. Like people buy that book because other people bought it. I I don't know. I think also people buy it because it's good and because well, I hope it because it's good, it, but I'm saying there's something that that causes people to look for something or to pursue something and the biggest factor does seem to be a vague awareness that other people like it. You know, that really is the key to selling something and it's an impossible thing to sort of capture because you can't manufacture it. It just sort of happens or it doesn't. But I think I think you know, there's two sort of I hate to use the phrase secrets of success. So let's say two tools of success that you take advantage of there. Uh, let's set aside it for a second, the blatant sex and drugs in the title. There's the fact that I think you created your own micro category of let's dive deep on every aspect of pop culture. Cause you don't just hit music. You don't just hit sports. You don't just hit, you know, writing, you kind of hit everything. And you do this throughout all of your essays. And we're going to talk about that a lot with your latest book, Chuck Klosterman X, but, uh, I should just call it X, not Chuck. Kl I, for some reason, I'm including your name in the title too. Um, but then the other, uh, secret of success there is, um, you know, I think, I mean, I can't even think the last time I read a pop culture book, uh, maybe Generation Ech mm. in like the early 90s. Do you remember that one? It was like kind of making fun of the pop culture of Generation yeah. X. So, and then I think just uh, you, you you have, uh, you, you created your own micro category and then you just have this like great way of analyzing all of these you know, you put yourself in the story. You're not just like analyzing from some intellectual viewpoint. You're saying, I'm here with, 
you know, so-and-so and your own interactions with them. It has this kind of gonzo style to it without the drugs. Yeah, well, you know, you you have kind of isolated one of sort of like the central obstructions to doing this, which is that but a lot of the things I write about are extremely popular ideas or concepts or people, but they're often not the popular thing that somebody then wants to read about, like television. Sometimes it's hard to write a book about television because people feel they have a relationship with it, but that relationship is kind of enough. The idea of watching it in their free time at home, that's maybe maybe talking about it with people they know, but the idea of then reading about it, they associate that with other interests, military history or... Right, so or, you're competing you know, against military history is what well, you're saying. it's not that you're competing against it. It's just that if somebody is interested in military history, the main way you pursue that is through reading books about it. If someone is interested in pop music or film or television, the main way you sort of, uh, you know, that manifests itself is through the consumption of the thing itself. In other words, you don't really need to read about Taylor Swift. You already have a relationship through her music and seeing her videos and seeing her live. So it's only a certain kind of person who wants to take that next step that they don't just want to consume something and then maybe think about it. They also want to sort of interact with somebody else's thoughts about it. So there's probably a hard ceiling to how popular a book about popular culture can be. Although, I will say a new phenomenon, and maybe for all I know, you kicked it off, is that process is art. So people, just as much as they want to watch... So let's look at the layers. They want to watch Breaking Bad. uh, They consume TV. Then they want to talk about it with their friends the next day. Hey, did you see mm-hmm. Breaking Bad last night? And maybe then they analyze it a little bit. But then there's a recent phenomenon where, okay, now I want to understand why are bad guys all the heroes in all of my favorite TV shows over the past 10 years? There's this golden age of television. Yes. So now kind of like the theory of what makes good TV has become a subject of creative work and analysis. Like, what does Don Draper stand for? Can we think about it? And I think that's what you uh, wrote about and write about and help, you know, help people start to analyze, like, what's the connection between pop culture and how can I improve my life in a world that seems to be falling apart around me? That is possible, I guess. That, that, I mean, the first part I definitely agree with that, you know, there was film criticism and there was music criticism and now television criticism has kind of moved in that class. That all three of these things are like valid, uh, not not just valid things to think about, but really high-end people sort of dealing with it. Now, are people doing this in order to contextualize it within the context of their own life? That's a more complicated question. I'm not disagreeing with it. I don't know if that's true. Take Don Draper as an example, okay? Many men want to be Don Draper after seeing that. Now, many men can't be Captain Kirk, but Don Draper somehow seems accessible because he's flawed. And he also has this this hidden secret identity, very much like this the, the iconic Superman story. You know, there's something secret inside of him. I'm just taking him as an example, but you can do this about oh, everybody. Sure, sure. You know, like uh, Breaking Bad, he has a, a secret identity. Dexter, but he has a secret I, identity. I don't know if it's aspirational. Like, they, they want to be Don Draper as much as they unconsciously relate to to being the character, the star lead character in their the own their story of their life. You know, it's like a guy has a job. 
He watches Mad Men. He sees Don Draper. Maybe he wants to be like him, but maybe more so he thinks he already is like him. Like, here I am. I'm a guy. I'm good at my job, but I have problems. And my problems are secret, and I'm stoic, so I keep them to myself. But I have this churning problem. You know, I'm, I'm actually a fraud. I think that a lot of the popularity of the Don Draper character might dovetail with this idea of imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome yeah. combined with he has a certain authenticity. He's not yeah. afraid. He's afraid to say who he is. He's not afraid to say what's on his mind. Yes. Yeah. Or, and also that that he is a self-created person. Right. I mean, literally in the sense that he took on someone's identity, but also his success was based on merit. That his ability to do this job better than other people is why he was successful. I think a lot of people want to view themselves like that. Uh, I think all people do. That, you know, it's it's very difficult to look at if you're a successful person, but I think it happens a lot when people reach a level of success. They start questioning, what really made this happen? If I had to do this all over again, would I achieve the same kind of success? Or was there so much chance involved that I could never replicate? I think this is a, a real common fear among people who look at their life and are happy with their life, but they wonder if it was earned or if it was just sort of the random way life unspools. And I think in X, this book, you kind of deal with a lot of these issues. Like what is the relationship between a pop cultural phenomenon and success mm. and what's happening in society that has led to these different things being successful, ranging from Beck to Hannah Montana to Tim Tebow. I don't, is that how you say his last name? Mm -hmm. I don't know sports at all. <laughs> so what's good about you is you, you know, there's, there are pop cultural critics who write about music. Like you mentioned music criticism, there's film critics. So like Rob Sheffield will write a book about the Beatles every few years. Mm. And you know, that's sort of accepted, but you kind of are, I feel like you just sit around the house watching and consuming every obscure minor league sports game and all of these obscure like metal bands and you watch every TV show and then you think about them and what's your first thought? Like what makes something valid enough for you to say, huh, this is interesting enough that I'm going to share this with a lot of people because they're going to benefit from it. Boy, that's a good question because um, it, it kind of works in two ways. In this book, because it's a collection of things that were published elsewhere, a lot of it on GQ, a lot of it were on the, on the site Grantland, um, Esquire, some of those places. But, but can I interrupt you uh, on that? And I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I'm an interrupter a little bit. They were so these. This is a collection of essays, and they were published elsewhere. But I had never read a single one of them before I read this book. So I I, I always hate, and this is not your fault. I hate when publishers or anybody feels obligated to say, okay, this appeared in GQ in 2011. I know you kind of have to do that, but it, it sort of almost demeans. Yeah, legally, legally. Legally, you right. You have to do that. So, so that's distressing to me as also a creator of well, content. Well, okay, here's part of it. Here, here it, even as the person you know, selling the book, there is a little weirdness in trying to resell something that already existed in one form. Like, I feel a little weird about that. I feel a little strange about taking things that I, you know, someone said, write this article about, you know, Eddie Van Halen or whatever. I do that. It's published in Billboard. I'm paid for it. It exists. And then several years later, I'm like, well, I'm going to repurpose this now for something else. That's a little strange. Um, so it doesn't seem like a, it, it doesn't seem to me 
as a quote unquote real book the way the last one did. I get it. And and maybe we can try to see if there's like a common narrative here. But it's just every essay stands alone to me as evergreen right now. Even though you're okay, you're talking about Hannah Mon- you have a I, I I keep bringing back to, you know, there's like th- 20 or 30 chapters in here. So there's lots of essays, but I'm bringing back to the Hannah Montana one again. Obviously, she's had a whole career now as Miley Cyrus. And what what makes it interesting is that when I wrote about her, I assumed that was going to be the apex of her career. I thought that I was talking about somebody who was only famous to little kids. And the value of this was probably almost like a time capsule of an individual who you never heard about and you'll never remember, but this happened and it had some meaning. At the time, I was writing about Hannah Montana as a way to sort of write about the weirdness of what social media was doing to personalities. But now, of course, Miley Cyrus has become a major star. Like, you know, But also due to social media in large part. Oh, sure. Well, that's, you can't really become successful now without it. But what I'm just saying is that she's a, not only a major star, but a totally different kind of star. Yes. You know, a very sexualized, very kind of... Um, progressive, uh, you know, an edgy mainstream artist or whatever. Um, so now it is interesting to go back and think, when I saw that piece, I was like, it's weird that I guess it was good luck. I picked the person kind of randomly who ended up having this life. There were many other people I could have picked maybe who would be forgotten the way I thought she might be. But, you know, um, Hannah Montana, my, my kids were sort of in the age sweet spot, like where that became mm. their favorite show for a short period of time. And you made the really interesting point that this is like many young girls have, you know, or interact with the world and they feel there's like their, you know, it's like everybody feels like there's this secret part of mm. themselves that they can't quite share. And then they have to be a little bit inauthentic in school, on the schoolyard. Well, or, or now with it's just the idea that, that it's not uncommon for a young person to be on Facebook and have two identities, the person they are in real life and the person they are online. It's a problem that used to only apply to celebrities. Like only Michael Jackson or whatever had to think that there's a person I am in public and a person I am at home. The average person did not think that there was any kind of bifurcation between, you know, the way that they were presenting themselves and who they actually were. And this Hannah Montana character, for people who have no idea what this was, this was the show Miley Cyrus was on when she was very young. And it was about a girl who was like a pop star, but she also wanted to sort of have a normal life. So she had a secret life as herself and there was, and no one was, it was almost like a superhero situation. Yeah, the opposite of a Don Draper where he had like a hidden past. She had two complete identities. One was a superhero and one was her kind of, you know, legit self somehow. Yes, and that, that, that this was that she needed that to be part of her life, and I I remember thinking that I wonder if this if the popularity of this is somehow connected to this new problem for young people that they have to to they're almost forced to be conscious of a personality they're creating for public consumption and the person that they just organically are. Um, now is that that idea now I think is probably pretty standard. I don't think anybody would look at that idea and be like, that's a real controversial or edgy point. But not true. it is interesting because the person who's at the center of this happens to be Miley Cyrus, who became a totally different thing. Yeah. But but also think about like Facebook and how people use it. Like you, we all know couples that they every photo is mm-hmm. them on the beach and they're smiling and they're happy, happy. And then the next thing you know, they're divorced because there is that public persona created by Facebook. Yes. That's my friend. He or she is on Facebook. There she is. 
but then there's what's really going on. Well, yeah, I mean, and fa- now and, there's really a disconnect. And Facebook has sort of become almost like a, a place where I project my perfect life. Yeah. Here's the cutest pictures of my kids. Here is me and my husband on our anniversary at this nice restaurant we'd never normally go to, but here we are. Um, here's our vacation photos. You know, it's it, it's so when it's a strange thing. It's like if you know a couple in real life. And they eventually get divorced. In all likelihood, there will be points along the way where you'll be like, oh, it does seem like they're having problems or it doesn't seem like they, they're they affectionate in public the way they used to be. But if you only follow them on Facebook, there's no possible way you would see divorce coming. So, so, yeah. so this brings me back to my original question because it could kind of hone in on why you instinctively picked up on Hannah Montana. And it's still an interesting topic now. I think the, this bifurcation of identity, what drives you to go from and and by the way you don't just write about kids tv shows that's the only one in this whole book but what drives you from a a pop cultural topic to think okay this is an interesting idea for mass consumption so i'm going to write about it i have interesting thoughts about this that i want to share with others well okay that was that was written during a period where i was running a monthly column for esquire so um in a sense, it was almost as though this was my job. My job was basically to think about the culture and come up with ideas that even though there would be, you know, it wasn't the internet yet, so it was like published like 50 days later, come up with an idea that will still kind of be relevant in two months um, that will sort of try to understand something about reality through these false constructions. How do I do that? I guess... um, First, I find what is interesting to me that I try to say, like, this thing I'm watching or this thing I'm listening to, you know, am I listening kind of passively or am I actively listening to it? Am I into it? Am I into watching this? And if the answer is yes, then I start asking myself, what am I interested in? And you just kind of keep asking that question over and over again until you get to the bottom. So that's that's interesting. So, like, what's an example let's say outside of this book, like in the past week, what, what have you can, what popular culture have you consumed in this past week where it triggered maybe a tiny something that you started to ask, well, why am I really excited about this? Here's an example. Okay. So, uh, two days ago, my wife and I started watching the new season of, um, house of cards, house of cards. You're exactly right. Okay. Now, in the past, I'd seen all the episodes, all, all the House of Cards, you know, and my wife likes it more than I do. I find it kind of a frustrating show. I do not like Kevin Spacey talking into the camera. I think that's kind of idiotic. And I kind of watched it, but I was like, this isn't that good of a show. And the first couple of episodes of this season, I've really liked. So I was wondering, you know, why is that? And I was like, well, is it that the show seems more realistic to me? And that's not really what it is. So I was like, kind of discount that. The next thing is that maybe I've become more familiar with these characters. And now that I'm starting to understand about them, things about them over time, there's making their decisions more interesting. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's really what it is either. So I was just kind of constantly asking myself, like, why am I liking this more? I don't know if I was you know, it's not like I'm sitting there just asking myself over and over again, like, why is this good? Why is this good? But the thought crosses my mind. It's like, why is this working? And I feel like the answer is that um, I'm very intrigued by the aspects of the show that they are clearly playing off of real life. 
without copying it exactly. Then otherwise, there's things going on with Trump. There's things going on with terrorism. There's all these things happening, you know, uh, with surveillance. And they're trying to move this into the story. And I'm interested by this. So then I'm like, well, why am I interested in that? Why is them playing off the news more interesting to me? Well, I guess it's the sense that I think to myself, I like whenever uh, a show attempts to illustrate uh, something about reality while also remaining creative. In other words, they're not just copying uh, what's happening. They're saying like, well, this idea, this idea about surveillance or this idea about terrorism. And I just kind of keep going and going and going until you get to a point where you're like kind of at the bedrock of it. And you're like, so this is what I really like about this. There was a whole bunch of shows, you know. Um, I, I wrote very briefly about this in the last book, but like shows like Nashville or Empire or Entourage or all of these things that kind of purport to show you an inside baseball look at something, but the shows are designed for people who really don't know anything about that world. So this is like inside baseball for non-insiders. And there's something about that that makes me think, well, this is actually the how reality feels to people. The things that they find interesting about House of Cards is actually the things that people find interesting about government. doesn't mean they're the right things or the true things. These are the, th you know, so maybe you can almost then again work backwards and you think like, well, what, what about, you know, Trump or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren? If they're succeeding, why are they succeeding? What are people seeing in them? And maybe what they're seeing in them are the same things they're seeing in this false reality of the show. So, so for instance, in this case, that we we might have this uh, over exaggerated view of government as being a hundred percent manipulated, you know, filled with manipulative people who are crooked, who are willing to do all sorts of deals with with Russia and mm -hmm. and you know behind the scenes that the average American is not aware of. And House of Cards is almost this false window into that reality well i think it might be this it's like they see real political figures people see real political figures and they they see their public persona what they're presenting you know um but what people are actually interested in is who these people are for real so they watch a show like house of cards which is purporting to show what these people are really like when when kevin spacey talks to the camera we're getting his interior thoughts or whatever um maybe that is entertaining to them because they're always imagining what it would be like if that's what it was like for Hillary Clinton. Maybe if, you know, they see Hillary Clinton and the things she says and they wonder, like, what is she, why is she actually saying this? So there's an episode in the second episode of House of Cards. At one point, the, you know, the Kevin Spacey, the president's talking to all 50 governors. And then it freezes and he talks to the camera. And he's sort of like, you know, I'm talking to 50 guys here, 50 people, but I'm only just talking to five people. And these are the five people I'm talking to, these five governors from five swing states. You know, and he explains that this whole thing is really an attempt just to isolate these five states that he'll need in the election. So I think. I think when somebody sees Hillary Clinton or Trump or whatever talking, they're trying to triangulate that in their mind. They're trying to imagine that if everything froze and this person stepped out and said, what am I really doing? They would say, the reason I used this language or the reason I get used this phrase is because I want a specific kind of person to hear like the dog whistle and to know what I mean. Um, so that is what, it, like if I was writing about House of Cards, that's what I would write about. Now, I did, I'm not writing about House of Cards. I actually hadn't thought this deeply about it until we just right. had this conversation right. now. Right, but. because it still needs an extra 
oomph, I feel. Yeah. Like the, the concept is really interesting, right? Like I buy into that, that, that this is our view. They're, they're basically reflecting back our view of government and he's giving kind of, um, his, by giving his interior thoughts, we're almost imagining this could be also what Trump and Hillary's interior thoughts are, even though it's all fiction yeah. for all we know. But what would be then the essence of what you would write? That would then I could take into my life and say, "Oh, this is well, interesting." Well, I mean, this is something we just came up with ten minutes ago. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I, forcing I, you on this. Spot. I don't know what it would be. I mean, it would. I, I'd have to think about it more because the way I look at this, like the writing isn't just the typing. The writing is everything. So if I was going to write about House of Cards and I just came up with the idea now, say you and I were just watching it, yeah, and, 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 I, and you, and I, I decided I was going to write about this. I would think about it when I go to the gym and I would think about it when I'm lying in bed and when I'm watching other shows and when I'm watching the NBA finals tonight, I'd probably be thinking about it. So I think about these things kind of constantly, but not actively. It's almost like a passive thing in my mind that, that these thoughts are going on while I'm doing other things. And then at one point, I'm just like, okay, I'm ready to start now. And then I just do it. And, it, and then I write real fast and it all kind of comes out. And, you know, a lot of it, it, so you'll find kind of like that one hook, like for instance, with Hannah Montana, the identity issue, and then you'll just sort of spew it out, this combination of who she is, what you think about her, what's interesting in society. And I think it gives us, the reader, a view of, hmm, okay, maybe this is connected to me in some way that I hadn't thought of before. I think ultimately it connects to me and how I can make myself better by understanding pop culture. So, so just like I under, just like they say that, you know, uh, understand history so you don't repeat its mistakes. So I read history books. It's the same pop culture is sort of like, and analyzing pop culture is sort of this rough draft of history, but still I can connect the dots into my life right now, maybe even more viscerally because I know who these players are. That's, you know, that's possibly true. Although I, Something else I would go back to, and I almost feel like we talked about this on your previous podcast. I'm sorry if I did, but like, um, you know, I interviewed Jack White of the White Stripes one time. And going into the interview, I was very interested to ask him questions about his guitar solos because I just found them very fascinating and I found a lot of meaning in them and, and that I thought there was it was there hadn't been a guy playing guitar solos for quite a few years at that period. This was in the early 2000s and that had kind of fallen out of favor. But when I started talking to him about it, it instantly became clear that I had thought more about this than he had and a lot of the things I was asking because playing guitar solos and maybe playing guitar in a lot of ways is the most natural extension of who he is. In other words, that's the one thing that he can do, not without thinking, but without having to sort of focus on that thought. It's in his head, it's in his fingers, it's just something about him, he can do it. And it's kind of arrogant to say, but I wonder sometimes if this is the same thing for me doing what you're asking me about. Like, you're trying to have me explain how I do this, and because it's my job and because this is a podcast, I find myself trying to come up with a cogent answer as to why. But I wonder if the real answer is that this is just something I can do. And it's not even, it's sort of like, I mean, it's, I really think it's nice when you say, oh, this is so good or this is so great, but it'd be kind of like looking at a cheetah and saying, wow, you're so fast. That's awesome. It's like the cheetah is just that way. And I think that this thing that you're asking me about might just be the way that I am. And if I had never become a writer, 
I would still sit around doing this. I just wouldn't be publishing it. Like, I don't feel as though this part of, like, there's parts of my job that are, like, a craft or a skill and I got to work on. But I don't know about this part. doesn't seem like it. It seems like the easiest part to me. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I think one aspect of all of these articles is that you prevent you present an opinion that maybe differs from the normal mainstream opinion. So when you write about Beck, so so Beck's loser, that mm. song was kind of like a defining song for me when I was mm. younger. Like it was great. It was it sort of exemplified in this great way what grunge was about mm. and 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 the 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 humility of being a loser as opposed to let's say the prior generation of punk which was a little bit more arrogant losers mm-hmm. and but you kind of tear it down loser in a different way where and, and you know if you look at the history of the song he kind of just put it together out of well the, yes and what I really remember about it I'm, I'm really talking more about the video than the song and I just remember when that was being promoted on MTV it was going to be like you know the this lead video uh, at like 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday night and we were all waiting to see it even though his record wasn't out yet. I think it was coming out Tuesday. So it was a couple of days before the record was out. I was unfamiliar with him, but he was presented like somebody who was already famous. And I guess as a college student, I was like, well, if he's presented that way, he probably is. And then the aesthetic that was in that video ended up being kind of like this mishmash of, oh, kind of like an amateur film student, also kind of like a feti- like fetishizing, like, Oh, you know, broken turntables and dressing like a weirdo, and 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 there's stock footage of stock car racing from the '60s or whatever. And it was amazing how fast that kind of became or seemed to become the aesthetic of the '90s. That that was a decade that it was kind of acceptable to just not be so ambitious and just kind of hang out and be weird and get into art even though you weren't an artist and and do all these things that that was their 90s things. I mean, there's like that episode of Portlandia, the very first episode of Portlandia. I think there's one of the, it's the very first scene. Like the two main characters are walking down the street and Fred Armiston turns and like says like, like he's just come back from Portland. And he's like, do you remember the 90s when it was just like, he just didn't have to do things. You just kind of would, you know, you would, you'd say you were going to meet somebody and maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't. And you always had a plan, but you never finished. It was like, that's what that Beck video seemed to create in a mainstream way. And when I think back on it, that's what I think about. So, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if that matches your reaction or not. Well, well, it didn't then, but it's more recently, you know, um, you know, if you read about how he made the video and the mm. song, he kind of like was almost giving up mm. and he just like put together this random song in the garage and it turned out to be loser, like this huge hit and and I really uh started to admire it even more on a second level which is that he kind of eluded the traditional uh production studio record label system and that did represent the 90s where you could kind of do it yourself it like was. Make, make these you know, make start doing things on your own rather than waiting for someone to say hey you're the best he made himself like something interesting well and it's also like the difference between you know uh, like sort of 
whole regions of art. I mean, like, okay, so you Beck does has this big meaningful song that is not really connected to what his original motives were at all. Like, I mean, if you'd asked him what were his motives behind that song, certainly in the 90s, he'd have been like, I don't have any. Well, you look at somebody like Taylor Swift, who believes the motives matter a lot, that to her, to her a song is successful is if what she intends is what people infer. In other words, if she's if she's writing about an idea and she wants them, if she wants the song to um, to uh, you know make people you know reflect on their own life, to her it's successful if those things happen. Whereas Beck is like, I made this song, I didn't really have an intention, so you're able to sort of make up the meaning. Like the meaning I have made up for that song, I'm sure Beck would be like, that's great, that's fine. But if you took like a Taylor Swift song or even like an Eddie Van Halen song and you said, well, I know you wanted it to be X, but I think it's Z, I think they would be like, no. But but in your interview with Jimmy Page, I think he avoids the question entirely. Yes. Because he wants it to be totally just about the music and then everyone's going to just personally Well, he, he comes it. from the 70s where, you know, Led Zeppelin didn't have to do promotion. They just had to tour and put out records. The touring was good enough. The records were good enough. They were huge because of it. So he sees any attempt to explain his work as shaping the interpretive quality of it. That he wants people, he actively wants people to sort of... Have a mystery about his music and to make up in their mind what the story means because that's how you know he mentions in that feature like listening to Chuck Berry songs and he was like you know we had there was just Chuck Berry song where they talk about grilling hamburgers and he's like we didn't have hamburgers in England like he didn't know what they were so he had to imagine what that meant so that's what he wants you know I do think that there has been a move away from that that there was a time when the idea of art was you did something and you hoped people would interpret it in interesting ways. Now I think we have moved, you know, this is actually probably because of the internet to a great deal, where it seems as though there are so many interpretations happening simultaneously and sometimes an incorrect one can become galvanized in the public's mind that artists have more desire to have a, you know, they want people to understand what they did. I guess because the interpretations and the analysis is happening the day after. Well, like it is. House of Cards yeah. came out two days ago yeah. and already we're analyzing what's going on. But I mean, like, you know, you mentioned Jimmy Page. And I'd also you know, mentioned Jack White. These are guys who they see doing media as both a hassle and almost a negative thing. Like, this is the enemy. You could potentially screw up my life, fuck my life up. Somebody like Taylor Swift would never think that. She would never think that doing media is not completely interconnected with, or Miley Cyrus, that they they, they would view uh, doing media as part of this process, that, that the way their music is covered and discussed and sort of analyzed is part of the process, the creative process. And that is just something that has changed over time. I mean, you know, because we live in a more mediated world now, the assumption is that media is an essential cog in this and not just some kind of outside force that tells people what they should and shouldn't be buying. You know, but at the same time, let's, I mean, we're, we're talking a bit about music. I want to hit some of the other essays, but it seems like it used to, in prior decades, Music did mean something. It was usually associated with some expression of youth. Whether or not each individual song had a very direct meaning and interpretation, there was usually this rebelliousness 
from from the Beatles to to you know metal to punk to you know rap and then grunge, but then suddenly you have pop where you have Taylor Swift's songs are all produced by, you know, this group of producers in Sweden. And, you know, she's kind of at the very tail end. She writes some lyrics. Uh, it, it seems like there's I not... I wouldn't say that. I, I think that... I wouldn't say that's how her process works. And also pop is just short for popular. Like Frank Sinatra was a pop singer. What we're really... What you're really talking about, I think, maybe you'll disagree with this, but like... Okay, so rock music... Its inception begins pretty much with the inception of the teenager. Now, there had always been people who were 15 years old. It's not like teenagers were invented, but the idea of teenagers is a post World War II idea. Prior to that, you went from being a child to an adult when you got married or started working, even if it had when you were 11. Like that, you were a kid and then you were an adult. But after World War II, there's this different period. There's this understanding that there's this middle period of life, okay? And cars are suddenly uh, prevalent and television and all these things that can become part of what a teenager's experience is. And from that, rock music comes, okay? So rock music is the first major art form where it's directly, you know, made for young people. Every other art prior to that had been for adults that teenagers might like. This is something that's made specifically for teenagers. And it creates, you know, helps sort of actually generate that that real generation gap that existed where if you were 16 years old in 1968, there was no chance that you and your father liked the same music. Like, he would have liked Glenn Miller or whatever, and you would have liked Jimi Hendrix. There was no overlap, okay? And that had made a natural tension. Like, rock had a natural adversarial tension. Well, now, say even by the 90s, it wasn't shocking if a kid and his dad both like you too. It's, it was like a shared culture. And this is why rock has sort of receded from the culture because a central component to it was this idea that it was made for young people and not made for older people. But eventually those younger people became older people. And now it's a different thing. It's like it doesn't mean what it used to and it probably, and I don't think it ever will again. I think so, that period is over. What do you think that means in terms of, you know, how teenagers, I mean, there's there. There still needs to be a way for teenagers to find... I think it's, find- it's technology now. I mean, when you hear teenagers say that, they, you know, young teenagers don't get on Facebook anymore. That's like what they think because their grandma's on it, you know? It's like they're on Instagram or Snapchat or probably platforms I don't even know about, you know, because I'm 45. Um, that, like, the, the generation gap has now sort of been replaced by a technology gap. And I think that that's the phase that we're in now. And, and at some point, uh, it's a little trickier because, you know, technology doesn't really have any sort of finite conclusion. Like, the, you can run out of jazz artists. You can run out of marching band artists. You can't run out of technology. There'll always be new technology. So this might just be how it is going forward. But something else about it tells me that there's going to be some other new thing. Do you think this will change the nature of nostalgia? So, for instance, I'm nostalgic for the music I grew up with. I love listening to it. But will kids now, 20 years from now, want to re-listen to Taylor Swift because that's the music they grew up with and identified with? Oh, that will definitely happen. I mean, this idea of nostalgia has has always existed. I mean, there's always this... You know, every generation of people has the rediscovery of the music that they liked when they were young, moved out of, but now can sort of return to that youth 
sonically through hearing about it. The way nostalgia operates, though, um, is going to be more complicated. And there's like an essay in this book about this. I mean, part of the reason that like you're nostalgic for the music of your teen years is partially be because you listen to that music so much. I would guess you had a limited number of records. And the ones that you loved, you played over and over again because that was the only way to do it, you know? Well, now, every, we're back to like a singles model. And there are unlimited singles. And if you're on Spotify, there's no reason to listen to the same record, you know, um, you know, twice in a week. I mean, you can if you want, but there's no, there's nothing. Like, I was forced to listen to some albums over and over again. Right. Didn't feel like it, yeah. So I think the lack of repetition might uh, decrease the amount of nostalgia people feel. I think nostalgia does often come purely from the repetitive nature of consuming the same thing until you get everything out of it that's there. Like every potential grain of interesting thing that was in those records you loved, you probably got because you just sat in your bedroom and played them over and over again. I don't know if if young people now have that experience with music. They may have it with other things. They may be more nostalgic for television because mm -hmm. it seems as though um, uh, television now is something you can easily watch multiple times, which used to be hard. You know, in the 80s, if you liked Different Strokes and you watch an episode of Different Strokes, well, you might see it again in the summer. You might never see it again until it goes into syndication. It was just kind of gone. Now, if you like something on television, if you like it, you know, I'm sure if someone, you know, loves the show Stranger Things or whatever, it's very possible that a 15-year-old kid who loves that show may have watched that entire series five times already just because it's on his computer and he can go back and watch it again. So it seems like everything now is much more granular. So when we were younger, uh, the, the series finale of MASH had, I don't know, 50 million viewers, yeah. 60 million viewers. Now, the top-rated TV shows, they don't even have 10 million viewers. Like, uh, everything, there's so many more networks, there's so many more TV shows, there's so many more books, there's so many more, much more music, there's so many more YouTube videos and internet sites. There's so much competition for our attention that media itself has become so granular. It's hard to be, for all of us as a group, like you and I watch different strokes, 20 years from now, our kids might not relate on the same thing. But media compensates for this in a way. Ma uh, the final episode of MASH was something like 56 million people. Okay, There'll never be a television show that will have that audience. Again, right. But what were there more stories about? The finale of MASH or the finale of Mad Men? I guarantee you the number of stories written about Mad Men's finale was probably at a minimum 10 times the amount of coverage that the MASH finale got. And that was a big deal. But, you know, MASH, the, the MASH finale, there was, I remember, an entire issue of, of TV Guide was, like, dedicated to it. And it was mentioned in Time and it was mentioned in Newsweek and it was in your paper. And during the week of the show, certainly CBS on the news would have talked about it. That was pretty much it. Like, maybe it was in Parade Magazine. It was in People Magazine. I guess if you, you know, you could probably find 25 stories written about the finale of MASH. You could find 25 stories about the finale of Mad Men that have been written this year, probably, years after it happened, that there are right. still people doing it. So that, in a way, kind of compensates it. It gives us the sense that Mad Men is popular the way MASH was popular, even though there was not any episode of MASH. I'm saying in its first season, 
that was watched by fewer people than the, probably the last episode of Mad Men. Because we know when there was only three networks, any random television show, the least popular show, was still getting, you know, 10 or 20% yeah. of the audience. It was everything, you know? So, you know, like every episode of WKRP in Cincinnati is bigger than any episode of you know, Game of Thrones or something in terms of the number of people who actually saw it. Right, so so it makes it interesting, like, how do people... So so two things. One is it, it, it underlines what you do, that process and criticism and interpretation has now become part of the art, an extension of the art. So there's not just the finale, there's also who is going to be the most insightful analyzing the finale or analyzing this musician or sharing their experiences with this sport with yeah, us so it we will can almost, participate. Sometimes that person will almost, it will almost seem like that reaction is as famous as the episode. Right, which like, I think yeah. is why your books mm -hmm. are successful. You're, you're arguably one of the most successful and popular pop culture critics, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, and sure, and I have a big advantage where most of the critics are expected to or want to be the first to write about something, and I kind of get to be the last person. And that mm -hmm. puts me in a very good position in terms of being able to say something that can have interest outside of the day it, it's published. You know, because I'm not just reacting to something. I'm sort of looking at all the other reactions and sort of thinking, well, like, well, this was, you know... Because whenever, you, whenever you're writing the day after something happens, and this is just part of journalism, it's a bigger part now, but it's always been part of it, you know, writing about something the day after it happens, um, you're wrong a lot for justifiable reasons. I mean, it's if, if you're able, it's like a song, you know, if you're able to appreciate the lyrics of a song the first time you hear them, it usually means the lyrics are kind of shallow. That the best songs you got to listen to for a while and you realize, well, they might actually mean the opposite of what they say. It's the same way with trying to react to a film or a television show or a video or anything like that the day after it happens. If you totally get it, it wasn't that great. Like the things that are great take a while to get. I think that's uh, that's an interesting point because, you know, obviously when somebody uh, – you know, sing something or perform something, they want to be liked and understood right away. Like the the goal of the artist is to be appreciated instantly or else they feel disappointed in some cases. Well, certainly when you're performing live, you feel that way. That if you're paying music that people haven't heard before, you want them to feel something immediately. Um, but that understandable desire for immediate sort of connection, if you want to do that, well you're inherently simplifying what you're doing. Hmm. I mean, you know, like if you're, uh, uh, the more sophisticated something is, the longer it's going to take to understand it, usually. Um, so if the goal is, I want this to happen right now, like I want to, I want to, I want the audience to feel everything there is to feel immediately, you've got to kind of use this straight, bombastic style. Um, and you know, this has changed the way music is recorded and presented now because music now, for the most part, is listened to through computers. And artists realize and producers realize we're not really in a position where we can expect that someone's going to listen to this 40 times. Like when Rihanna puts a single out, it's like it's got to be good right now. 
So we got to make this in a way and we got to produce this in a way that has immediacy built in that like it kind of hits you with everything it can right away. Um, and that is, I would say, probably a cultural loss. I mean, there's many upsides to the way culture has changed for the consumer. I mean, certainly, you know, if you would have said to me, in 1986, here's a machine and you can listen to every record on it, everyone that's out, every record's available here. I would have been like, this is beyond my greatest fantasy. I would have, of course, I would have been like, this is, I can't believe this has happened, you know? Um, so that's good, right? But there is other losses to it. There's a loss to the fact that I had for a very long time, I had five cassettes and I would listen to the same cassette over and over and over again. Well, I got things out of there I could never possibly get in the conditions of the world now. There's no way I would listen to anything that I didn't even necessarily love that many times. So so let's let's take this to your writing. I mean, so... I would say part of your writing style is to to have an opinion that's insightful. You're almost kind of like feeding people like, here's cocktail party conversation for you. If this subject comes up, I'm saying something different that you could think about and even talk about to your friends. So so you're, you're feeding people an opinion. Then there's the second part, which is that you're able to write about everything. We've been talking about music, but you write about you're a literary critic, a movie critic, a TV critic. You write a lot about sports. Uh, there's 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 articles about all of these topics all throughout X, your your book X. Um, and then there's this other aspect, which is that you again you you do this technique where you're in the story in many of the cases. So your 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 interview with Tom Brady, the the quarterback, was very interesting in that it's a horrible interview. <laughs> it's just horrible which you even admit yeah. in like the intro, but you're in it, in the story, having this horrible interview. So part of it is your reaction to that. And that's part of the story. And I think that's fascinating to write like that. Yeah, I mean, I would I would classify that feature as unsuccessful because to me, a feature is only successful if we learn something about the person who's the center of it and that the person who reads it walks away thinking about that individual. Um, you know, mm, if somebody says, that's interesting. well, like if somebody says to me, like, I love this feature, I think the writing is great. That means it didn't work. That means I didn't notice the main thing you're supposed to notice. I mean, there's mm. a Kobe Bryant interview in this book, which I think is one of the better pieces I've ever done. Because if you read that, the conversation you will want to have, or the thoughts you will want to generate are about Kobe Bryant. It worked. Okay. Co the Co Kobe Bryant and a way that his success and work ethic stands out above all the other stories about him and, and how that could be applied to your life. And his awareness of it and his self-awareness and all of these things. The Tom Brady thing is a pretty much an essay with a Q&A in the middle. It was initially supposed to be a standard profile where I talked to him principally about this issue of Deflategate and I thought that would unspool into a whole bunch of other ideas. But it didn't happen at all. It was just a complete failure. But... I wrote just kind of my thoughts on him and then put this thing in the middle. So I do think that probably as a piece in a book, it's it's pretty readable, but it doesn't mean I think it's successful. I mean, I, I think that my everybody's their worst view, like their worst judge of their own work. I, I just think this is very true. Yeah, but I because think... Every, because the thing when you, for me, something is successful 
if it matches what I imagine in my mind I wanted to write. But the consumer doesn't care about that. The consumer cares about, like, is it interesting to them? So things can seem bad to me that can be good to other people. Things can seem good to me that seem bad. You know, it's like, or, or, you know, vice versa. But, like, compare yourself to musicians from the 70s yeah. to now. Like, you say that about the Tom Brady essay, but I thought it's, A, fascinating to put that essay in this book, B, your your role as a character in the essay and his responses were kind of funny. I thought that was a funny essay and I did actually get entertainment well, value I, out yeah. of it. But that's but okay, you music guy, it's like did you like did you like the replacements when you were young? No. Okay. Well I didn't I, know who they were. Okay. Well, the replacements early work is beloved by their fans. And their lead kind of front man, Paul Westerberg, then eventually left the band. And I know he thinks his work is better now. He's technically better. I think that he thinks that he's more conscious of what he's doing. He's sober and all of these things. But his perception of his work doesn't matter as much as I guess his, his fans do. Because when, you know, his place sort of in the history of music is established by those early records. So when people ask me like, oh, what stories in this book do you like? What ones you don't? I mean, I have answers. I, I could rank all those, I guess, in my mind of if I think they're good or bad. I could give them all letter grades or whatever. Uh, but I'm using a standard that only applies to me. It is only my belief in what I wanted to do and how close it came. So so I'll close this with saying I think all of the essays are just were just a pleasure to read. It's a good kind of overview of not only many of the music and literary and and visual you know entertainments that I grew up with but even many that exist right now uh you always have this distinct opinion that's interesting to understand and it changes my way of thinking about these things like, you know, Beck's Loser was a, a great example, but but for many of these things. Um, what would be five books or shows or any kind of content you would recommend people should read, let's say, after this? Oh, well, well, you'd mentioned Rob Sheffield's Beals book. That's a very good book. I just read a, uh, a book by a guy named Derek Thompson called Hitmakers. Great book. Yeah, he does a really kind of analytical look at why things are successful. Um, but those things kind of fall in line, I guess, like with with what this book sort of is or intends. I mean, I don't know what else I would say. I mean, like, uh, uh, you know, I really like the TV show Better Call Saul. I don't know if it's connected. I love that. I don't know if it's connected to my book, but I, that's if somebody said, like, what should I be watching? I'd say that. Um, I just am reading a book right now by an author named, I think his name is Jeff Ginn, about the Jonestown tragedy and mm -hmm. Jim Jones. My book's not like that, but it's interesting to me. I This is the thing, about, I guess, why I've been, I'm luck, a lucky person in that, my whole career has just been following what's personally interesting to me without any sort of structure to it. Like there, if if I was asked to come up with like comparative titles to this book, I could do it, but it would be just like, I know these are the answers. They wouldn't feel that way to me, you know? So um, I guess I would tell people, well, you know, if you like this book, buy four other books I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> including your novels, by the way. We didn't talk about well, that, but you're a fiction writer, so you definitely dabble in all forms of creativity. You've been on shows, documentaries, uh, 
nonfiction books, essay books, fiction books. Like, I think you've had a chance to really express oh, I yourself. I, I, I could have never anticipated this life. Some, I mean, I, it wasn't even something I dreamed of having happen. I never had dreams like this. My dreams were smaller than the way my life has turned out, and that's a weird thing. Well, uh, thanks for coming again on the podcast. My pleasure. Next time on The James Altucher Show. Everyone's a work in progress. And since you're a work in progress, it's very hard to know yourself, but there are certain deep, essential characteristics or values. And when you violate those, you feel the artificiality. Or you don't because you're not aware or you're afraid when people see the real you, even though that could be the most powerful potion for success. Yeah, and I'll add one more because you really have been inspiring to me and I think millions of other people in this respect is what weirdness or... I'm insulted now. No, no, no. This is going somewhere good. Let me finish. Like what weirdness or weakness that I've made an attempt to hide could I actually really dive headfirst into and explore and embrace and possibly share? I think that is a superpower. Really embracing your your authentically weird self because you know, normal people are just folks you don't know well enough yet, right? <laughs> There's nobody's normal. We're so full of stuff and trauma and nonsense and silly beliefs. It's like everybody's full of that stuff. Thanks for listening to my show today. I really hope you took away as much as I did. If you'd like to hear more, do yourself a favor and subscribe. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.